Today, we will begin a new series. I finish Mark, you know, I go book by book. And often when I finish a book, I take the time to preach a series of topics that, that's in my heart. So if you remember, a long time ago, I preached about the, the supremacy of Jesus over certain areas. I know that Dan remembers that because that's when he first came to church. So I don't remember if I finished Jude and then I moved to the supremacy of Christ or I finished Ruth. But every time I finish a book, I think it's a good time to just preach some sermons on some major topics that the Lord has been placing upon my heart. And, and I want to start a series, a theology of the church and, and I don't know how many Sundays, but I know that right after we are done, then we go to the book of Esther. So we're going to study the book of Esther. So if you want to start reading and getting yourself used to the book of Esther, please go for it. So today we're going to start a series about the church, a theology of the church, what is the church, who created the church, what is the mission, the purpose of the church, who should be part of the church, who should be the leaders in the church, what is the role of the members in the church. Baptism, Lord's Table, church membership. So my plan is to cover these things, but before, I want to give you a theology of the church, a biblical theology of the church, beginning, in the beginning, in Genesis. But to start, I want to invite you to stand up and let's open our Bibles in First Peter. That's going to be the main passage here, but we're going to be working through the Old Testament today. Just so we have these wonderful words from Peter. First Peter chapter 2. And you see there is a contrast. Starting verse 9. It's talking about those who do not believe in Christ. Those who do not have faith in Jesus. And then you move to verse 9. Okay, he says, verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And then you have this beautiful contrast. But you, who is the you here? The church, us. Go back to chapter 1 and you see that he's talking to the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You may be seated. Let me ask you, how do you see the church? What's your view of the church? What is the church for you? Do you love the church? Do you love the church? Think about that. Or is the church a necessary evil created by man, established by man? An optional club that I can join if I want. If I don't want, that's fine. I'm still a Christian. Who cares? Think about this. Can you enjoy Christ without joining His body? Do you love the church? Do you love the church? As Dan read Ephesians 5, Christ loves the church. God loves the church. The Father loves the church. The Spirit loves the church. Or is the church a creation of man? Arthur in his excellent book, he has a very good book, The Emergency of the Church. And he writes, When the French Roman Catholic scholar Alfred Loisy, he studied the life of Jesus. Here's what Alfred Loisy wrote. Jesus foretold the kingdom. And oops, it was the church that came. The implication of this statement is that since the kingdom did not come during Jesus' lifetime, the early believers creator created the church instead. Is it true? Is the church a creation of man? Is it an accident? An accident in history? Is it a parenthesis in God's unfolding history of redemption? And you might say, of course not. Now, let me tell you that most Christians in the United States of America, they believe that the church is actually an accident, a parenthesis. And you say, why? I ask you, why do they believe in the doctrine of the rapture of the church? Answer to yourself, why is there a doctrine of the rapture of the church? 
Because the whole plan was Israel. The church is an accident. A parenthesis. Therefore, the church must be removed in order for God's promises to be fulfilled in whom? The nation. The physical Israel. But you see, it's easy for us to say, oh, of course the church is not an accident. But most Christians, down deep in their understanding, actually the church is an accident. Or a parenthesis. The Bible is clear that the church is not a historical accident or the creation of frustrated men with the embarrassing failed promises of Jesus about the coming of the kingdom of God. Paul actually, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseas to care for the church of God which he'll be clean with his own what? Blood. God shed his blood for the church. That's not an accident. It goes back all to eternity before creation. The triune God and the plan of salvation. Magnifying his glory to the salvation of his people. According to Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10, the heavenly host is praising the Lamb who redeemed who? Just earthly Israel? All oh, the redeemed. The church. The lampstand. The church. And it goes through the titles that we find in the Word of God for the church. The church is God's household, God's family. And I plan to go through all these titles throughout this series. The church is His lampstand. It's His. His temple. Jesus' body, God's chosen people, God's own people, God's own possession, Jesus' bride, the true Israel, God's royal priesthood, the beloved of God, God's vineyard, a special people. Jesus says that He's building His church, and we don't find this promise to any other institution on earth, just the church. Even the family, that's so special. Jesus didn't promise, I will build the family. I will build my church. And as you think about the doctrine of the church, ecclesiologists deeply connect to all, all other doctrines of the Christian faith. And it's interesting because you talk to people, most people think that they know everything about the church. Especially people who grew up in church. They think they know everything about the church. Isn't that true? So often I talk to people... And, and they say that they, they used to be Christians or they are Christians, but they don't go to church. And they always say, I grew up in church. I know everything about church. Uh, here's the proof that you don't know anything actually about the church. And we need to study. We need to study the doctrine of the church because deficient, weak, poor orthodoxy will lead to deficient, poor orthopraxy. Mark Dever, he writes, Ecclesiology is the most visible part of the Christian theology. A distorted church usually coincides with a distorted gospel. A distorted church is related to a distorted gospel. So my goal is to go through the scriptures and see God's plan of saving His people for His glory through His Son as it develops through redemptive history. So that's the purpose as we go through this series of sermons on the church and I want to just be clear about my way of interpreting the Scriptures. Everyone has some sort of hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? It's the way they interpret something. And you use hermeneutics for everything. If you buy a crib and you're going to put that crib together, you've got to read the instructions. And you have hermeneutics, how you read those things, how you interpret. Okay? So if you buy... Or a TV, and you want to put that TV together, you go through and how to install things. So everyone, hermeneutics is applied to every single science, how you read, how you interpret something. So we all have our hermeneutics in relation to the Bible. We all have a theology. The question is, is it right? Is it biblical? Is it sound? So, just so you know, as most of you know how my approach to scriptures is uh, a Christ-centered approach or if you want a, a bigger name, progressive covenantalism. 
progressive covenantalism of covenants. So there is a progression in the covenants. All the covenants that God established, they are being progressively moving forward until they find its culmination in Jesus Christ and the new covenant. So, I interpret the Old Testament through the lenses of the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's what the New Testament teaches us to do. For example, Matthew, Matthew 5.17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have, I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fill to its fullness. Or Luke 24.27, as Jesus is walking with his disciples on the Emmaus road. You remember, he says, he's talking to his disciples. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the whole Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The whole Old Testament is supposed to lead us to Christ. And since he's the head of the church, the church is there in the Old Testament. Or the author of Hebrews, he says, and you see that there is a progression. Remember what I said? Progressive covenantalism, a progression in the covenants, a progression in revelation. God is revealing little by little throughout history until it culminates in Jesus Christ. So Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2, Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He spoke, it's finished, He spoke to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So you think about the Scriptures, they were marching. Revelation was marching from the beginning until you find its culmination in Jesus Christ. Okay? So that's my approach. And since we are in Christ, the church is there also. Little by little being revealed in the Scriptures. Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam in Kingdom Through Covenants, they write... Scripture, as a word-act revelation, also involves historical progression. Since just that God's plan of redemption and mighty acts did not happen all at once, that's important. Listen to this. Remember, God didn't come with Jesus in Genesis. There is a progression. God is moving little by little throughout history. Therefore, we need a progression of revelation to explain what God is doing. So, just as God's plan of redemption and mighty acts did not happen all at once, so revelation unfolds over time. Revelation alongside redemption unfolds in a progressive manner. By unique twists and turns in separate but related epochs, largely demarcated by God's acts and redemptive covenants, which ultimately finds its culmination in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you think about the major themes of the Bible. Think about the major themes of the Scriptures. Seed. The theme of the seed. Genesis 3. The promise to Abraham that a seed. The theme of the temple. The theme of a land. The theme of salvation. The theme of covenants. The theme of resurrection. The theme of a nation. The theme of warfare. They are all progressively developed until they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And that's why Alfred Loisy got wrong there. Because he says, it's all about the kingdom. The kingdom never came. Because he's not watching that there is a progression in Revelation. And as we see in this progression, more and more things are revealed. So, as we read and study the Bible, we want to remember that there is an unfolding of God's plans until it reaches its culmination in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promises of the Old Testament filled full. Jesus was not an accident. And because the church is His body, the church is not an accident either. Okay? So you cannot have a sound theology of the church if you don't understand Christ. He is the head of the church. We are in Him. So we must understand who we are in order to understand what we are and what we are supposed to be doing. And as you think about this progression of revelation... And, and, and I need to give you these more technical things today just so you know where I'm coming from and where I'm heading in this series. As God is giving this progression in Revelation, there is something called typology, types in the Bible. Has anybody here ever studied types in the Bible? 
Anybody? Types. Types. Okay. And these types are deeply connected with intertextuality. And I have there for you this long word. It's important. Intertextuality. What is that? Intertextuality. Basically, is that later authors, they are using earlier revelations and developing them. That's very important. So, later authors of the Bible, they use earlier revelations as their foundation and in order to develop them. So, that's intertextuality. The phenomenon whereby one passage of Scripture refers to another, wherein later texts transform earlier ones by deepening, expanding, or revising them. So, you go through the prophets. You get Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and they, they are using all the things that were earlier in God's revelation. Intertextuality. And inside intertextuality, there is types, typology. What are types? Types are real people, real places, real events that had a greater meaning as, God's, as God develops a revelation. So we have the types. And it's important to think types, typology, is very different from allegory. Okay? Allegory, you create your own meaning. Typology, the Bible defines that. So there are many types of types in the Bible. So, for example, Adam, he's a type. He's a historical person, and he's a type of whom? Christ. Not only of Christ, but of Israel. So Adam, Paul says, Romans chapter 5, through one man... Adam came disobedience. And he says that the anti-type is Jesus. So you have the type Adam, and the anti-type, the fulfillment of Adam, Jesus Christ. Not only Adam, but the Exodus also. Exodus is a type. It's a real historical act. It's not that the Exodus was just a creation. No, it's real. But it was pointing to something greater. What was the Exodus pointing to? Jesus Christ and the greater salvation. Not a salvation from a nation, but salvation from the wrath of God. David, a real person, but he's the type of Messiah, of a Savior, of a throne. So therefore, therefore typology is key to understand Jesus and the church. God intended earlier persons, acts, and institutions to present a type or shadow or pattern of future greater fulfillment. And that's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 3 that the gospel was clearly proclaimed by the prophets. And then he goes to chapter 16 and towards the end he says, actually the gospel was hidden. Wait a second, Paul. What do you talk about? Was it clearly proclaimed or was hidden? You've got to understand types that erase all the contradictions. Now we can see clearly what was spoken before through types. David Schrock, he writes, but figuratively, the springs of typology begin in Eden, flow through the patriarchs, collecting the laws stone containers, then fermenting in these caskets, the waters begin to turn into wine. Through a process of formation, deformation, and reformation, the wine of typology ages until the time of Christ. When the old wineskins are broken and the new wine is ready, through this aging process, the types repeat, sometimes rising to glorious heights, formation, sometimes falling to calamitous destruction, deformation, but always following the topography of Israel's covenant history until God's appointed season of reformation in Christ Jesus. Why, why does it matter? Why do you talk about these things? It matters. You are reading the Bible and you are interpreting somehow. You are interpreting the Bible. Unless you are doing a mind-numbing reading that you don't even know what you are doing. But when you read the Bible, you are interpreting the Bible. And the question is, how are you interpreting the Scriptures? When you read Second Samuel, you read the promise of David, an eternal throne, what do you do with that? How do you interpret that? Or you just skip it and forget it? Since the types in the Bible find their fulfillment... First in Christ and not in us, we as God's people participate in the typological pattern by virtue of a relationship to Christ. And that's where we play a, a key role. That's why it's so crucial, the Old Testament. The Old Testament is our book. It's not the Jewish people's book. 
That's our book. Paul talks about the patriarchs to the church in Corinth as, hey, your forefathers. That's Gentiles in Corinth. And he's saying that actually Abraham, Noah, Moses are your fathers. Very interesting. Adam was a type of Israel, which was a type of Christ. And that's why the authors of the New Testament, in particular Paul and Peter, addresses the church as the Israel of God. In First Peter chapter 2, what we just read. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's all titles for Israel, for the nation of Israel. And he's applying to whom? The church, us. Wait a second, Peter, you're messed up. No, he's doing exactly what the Holy Spirit intends him to do and what Jesus did. Since Christ is the fulfillment of all those types, we who are in Christ are part of this glorious revelation. You see, if we don't understand that, we're going to think that the church is a New Testament thing. That the church is just this accident. This creation of man. A parenthesis in history. Actually, no. We've got to go back to the beginning of the Scriptures because if Christ is there, His people are there with Him. So, I want to just spend a few minutes in Genesis and talk about the creation in the church. Like all those good mystery books or mystery novels. Does anybody here like mystery novels? Okay. Do you ever start in the, in the end of the book? Yeah, but you've got to have some... <laughs> Something's not working well there. Just the, <laughs> the whole point is to have a plot. So create something. Tension. You want to know what's going on. Just like any good story. You don't start in the back. That's messed up. Honestly. That's messed up to start in the back. You don't get a movie and you start with the end of the movie. The same with the Bible. We've got to start in the beginning. There is a story. God is the author. He's the perfect author. Most glorious, most beautiful writing. The Bible. The most glorious book because it has the most glorious author. So to understand Christ and the church, you must go back to creation. Not Acts. We don't go to the book of Acts to understand the church first. We go back to creation. Genesis. It's in Genesis 1-3 through that we see the theme of the seed, marriage, covenant, tabernacle, the representative roles, all emerging in Scriptures. And all these major themes find their fulfillment in Jesus. And we are there. So when you go to Genesis, Genesis 1, for example, verses 1-2, through and he reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then he starts just this series of acts of God creating things. So the picture is of God as this king ruling reigning over chaos and expanding His kingdom. That's the picture of Genesis 1. It's God as this king, expanding His kingdom. Remember the theme of kingdom of God that runs through Scriptures? Right in Genesis. Expanding His kingdom through the darkness and the chaos. And He's building His temple. He's building this sanctuary. His dwelling place. Earth. And with a very specific holy of holies, that's Eden, the Garden of Eden. And then we read that He creates man. So verses 26 through 28, chapter 1, and then chapter 2, you have a, a closer look in creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same promise, the same request, is going to be passed to Noah, to Abraham, to Israel, to the church, in its fulfillment. So, the first man. We read the creation of the first man. Once God's work of the temple, earth, 
is accomplished, God creates and places man inside His temple. And what is man supposed to do? Chapter 2, verse 15. And He placed man. And what is man supposed to do? To cultivate, guard, and to keep it. Right? And when you study, it's very interesting because these two words here are used throughout, the, especially the Pentateuch, the first five books, in relation to the nation of Israel. Serving God and guarding God's Word was used for priests to keep the service of the tabernacle. Adam was made by God and placed in a beautiful land, in a beautiful temple, in order to be God's vice-regent. Obeying the Lord, exercising dominion, expanding the Eden, and multiplying. Thus, Adam had a royal and priestly function. What is told of the nation of Israel? You are a royal nation. A priestly nation. What does Peter say about the church? You are a royal people. A priestly people. And one of the implications of the Imago Dei, what is the Imago Dei? The image of God. Is that Adam and Eve were to reflect God's kingship by being vice-regents on earth. That's one of the major implications of being Imago Dei in the context of Genesis. Is to reflect God in ruling. Just like God ruled over the chaos, they are also supposed to do that. Because we are told that just the Garden of Eden is well structured. Adam is supposed to expand and keep guarding, cultivating, expanding God's glory throughout the earth. Adam is the first son of God. Here is the, the language of likeness. was made in the likeness of God. And you go to Genesis 5, it says the same thing. And then in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, the, son, the Adam was the son of God. Why? Because of bearing the likeness. The son bears, bears the likeness of his father. Oh, so here the language of likeness implying sonship. Who is the son of God? First Adam. Who is the perfect son of God? Jesus Christ. And what are we? Sons of God. And you see, the... Three rows of prophet, king, and priests being placed upon Adam. Adam is to rule as a king. He received God's Torah, his instructions. And as a prophet, he must pass God's instructions to his wife, to his kids. And Adam is to cultivate the garden as a priest. He lives in the presence of God, just like the priests. So here we start seeing the similarities with the nation of Israel. Israel was created, chosen by God, called Son of God, had the land, had the Torah, and was a kingdom of priests. Bruce Waltke, he writes, In that type of the greater antitype, God also creates a people, Adam and Eve, gives them a garden as the land to sustain and refresh them, hands down the law not to eat of the forbidden fruit and make them kings to keep his garden. You see the themes beginning in Genesis, developing throughout the Scriptures, find their fulfillment in Christ and the church? I hope so. I hope you can see that. But they rebel against God and they disobey Him, and as a result, they are banished from the garden, exiled. Whoa. That's the nation of Israel right here. Yet in the punishment comes a promise and hope of a seed, the seed of the woman, will triumph over the serpent on humanity's behalf. So this first Adam is created in the image of God. And isn't that interesting that the last Adam, he bears the image of man to save us? Philippians chapter 2, he who was God bore the image of a servant in order to do what? To rescue us? That's how much God loves His people. There will be a reverse here. He creates man in his image. Man rebels against him. So there is the promise of a seed. That's Jesus. Who bears the image of man to make a people holy for himself. And we, the church, now bear the image of Christ. Romans 8.29 Because of Jesus, the true Adam, and the true Son of God, the members of the church are called sons of God. Bearing the restored image of God. And it's important to stop and think about Adam as the representative of humanity. And that applies to the church, brothers and sisters. First applies to all humanity. Adam plays a crucial role in humanity. 
He's the one and the many. As Adam represents the old creation, Jesus represents the new creation. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. And you need to understand this representative role. I will talk more about that next Lord's Day when you talk about the nation of Israel. The church and the nation of Israel. But the representative role is key. Adam, the first Adam represents humanity. Fallen humanity. The last Adam represents who? Restored humanity. And this representative or solidarity role enables us to understand who we, the church, are in God's eyes. We are the family of God, sons of God, because of this Son, Jesus. And because of this Son, who is our head, who represents us, we can be called what? Children of God. Sons of God. So you've got to understand, it's not because you are cute or because you were born in a nice home, in a Christian home, that you are by nature children of God. By no means. No means. You're children of wrath by nature. They need to understand Jesus, the Son of God, the greater Adam. And those who are in Him, who embrace Him, believe in Him, love Him, are in the Son. Consequently, they are adopted into the family. Not only the representative role, but also marriage. Genesis 1-3 through 3 brings us another crucial theme in creation, and that's the concept of marriage covenant. Adam and Eve, they enter into a God-established covenant of mutual help. And marriage in Genesis 1-2 through 2 becomes a type, a pattern of the greater covenant, the new covenant between Jesus and the church. And that's what Dan read. Dan, you you stole my notes. I'm pretty sure you got my notes, brother. Ephesians 5. Paul comes to this section in Ephesians. He's bringing all the heavy doctrine, all the heavy orthodox teachings in the beginning to the practical applications he's developing now in his letter. When you come to chapter 5, he's talking about relationships in the church, in the home. And he says... Starting verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved who? The nation of Israel? Physical Israel. The United States of America. The church. And give himself up for the church. That he might sanctify the church. Have cleansed the church by washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The church might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of His body. Therefore, and he's quoting Genesis here, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm talking about marriage primarily, Paul is saying. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, it's not that God created marriage and said, okay, what is a good illustration for marriage? Marriage is so important. I love marriage so much. What would be a good illustration for marriage? Oh, okay, let me create a church. The church is going to be a good illustration for marriage. That's not it. That's not it. Marriage is an illustration of a temporal, loving relationship that illustrates His eternal, loving relationship towards His people. That should be shocking because people don't talk about that. It's always the church and this illustration of marriage. Actually, Paul says, uh, 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 uh. actually, marriage is an illustration of God's love for His people, the church. So, we see right in the beginning, Genesis, the institution of marriage, that we are there. God loves His people. And the image of the church as the bride of Christ is being drawn from the Old Testament. I will talk more about next Lord's Day. But Israel was called the bride of Yahweh, the bride of the Lord. Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62, Jeremiah 31. But for Paul, the true bride of Yahweh is not physical Israel, but the true Israel. Jews and Gentiles, the church. 
Paul sees the, cov- the covenantal marriage institution in Genesis 2 as a type. Remember, let's talk about types as a type of the new covenant, Jesus and the church. So, Genesis begins with marriage, Revelation ends with what? The marriage supper. Who is getting married? Jesus and his people. So, if you ask the Apostle Paul if he thought that the church was an accident, he'd say, Are you out of your mind? Haven't you read Genesis? And we, the church, as the bride of Christ, ought not to be flirting with the world. So many churches flirting with the world. You have a husband who loves you. He's jealous for you. Another thing that we see in Genesis connected to Jesus and the church is that Eden is the dwelling of God. The Garden of Eden was God's dwelling place among men. So you think about temple. Think about the land. These last two weeks with the issues in Palestine, Israel, then you start seeing people's theology coming to light. We need to defend, we need to preserve the land of Israel. That belongs to the Jews. You see, it's a theology of the land here. A theology of the land begins in Genesis. They had a land. They were exiled because of sin. And why is the land important? Why is the land important? Why was it called Holy Land? There was a temple there. God's presence was there. This is called a theology of the land. is inseparably connects to the theology of the temple. Why a land? Because there is where God's going to establish His temple, His dwelling place. So, it starts in the Garden of Eden. Interesting, the same Hebrew verbal form, mithalak, used for God's walking back and forth in, in the garden, Genesis 3.8, also describes God's presence in the tabernacle. Leviticus 26.12, there are a lot of similarities. And I, I talked about them before when it, we were in Mark chapter 11, and I did a theology of the temple there. We think about the Garden of Eden. That's the first temple. It's a holy land. It's the Holy of Holies. And then there's the fall. And what happens after the fall? What happens to Adam and Eve? Exiled. They are out of the land. They are out of the tabernacle. And then it starts developing a hope. A hope of a land. The hope of a land with God's tabernacle once again dwelling with His people. That's the Old Testament. Ezekiel, the temple vision, he's longing for a new Eden, a greater Eden, where God would dwell and the rivers flowing. Remember, Ezekiel's prophecy about the temple and the, the rivers, the water inside the temple. Where is that from? Genesis. In the Eden, you have two rivers. They would give life to all, all the other areas. And then Jesus comes. And how does the Gospel of John describe Jesus coming? And He dwelt, He tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. And then the whole New Testament developed as Jesus, as this fulfillment of God's dwelling. Here is Jesus, the true temple, the true tabernacle, the true garden of Eden, where God dwells, where man can have access to God, where God and man have fellowship. Eden is restored in Jesus. And because Jesus is the true Eden... The true dwelling of God, the church. We who are in Him are well, are, are together with Jesus, the true Eden. We thought about that. And you think about the Garden of Eden. What is the Garden of Eden all about? Think about that. What is the Garden of Eden all about? Fellowship between God and man. It was refreshing for Adam. He would come and meet with God and talk to God, hear God speaking. That's what the church must be like. A place where people come and they see that's the dwelling of the Holy God. A place that brings satisfaction. It's refreshing. Just like the rivers, the two rivers in the Garden of Eden. Then Jesus applies that to Himself. He talks about Him being the water of life. And those who believe in Him will have waters gushing forth from them. John chapter 4. All going back to a theology of land and temple. Eden was a place of worship. And that's what the church must be. It's not a place of entertainment. You ought not to be looking for a church where you're going to be entertained, where your kids are going to be entertained. You hear so many people looking for a church. Well, why are you looking for a church? Oh, they have an awesome youth group. Oh, so you're looking for entertainment. No worship. Entertainment. 
Because they have a lot of activities. They have activities for people my age. So, as we understand who we are, that will determine what we do. And lastly, a people for His glory. Not only a place for His glory, but a people for His glory. Adam was created to glorify God by treasuring Him, keeping His Torah, His instructions, and resembling the Creator in ruling and subduing the earth. Gregory Beale, he has excellent material. He has an excellent book, The Temple and the Church's Mission. He writes, Adam was to widen, expand the boundaries of the garden in ever-increasing circles by extending the order of the garden sanctuary into the inhospitable outer spaces. The outward expansion would include the goal of spreading the glorious presence of God. This would happen especially by Adam's progeny, born in his image, and thus reflecting God's image in the light of his presence, as they continue to obey the mandate given to their parents, and went out to subdue the outer country until the Eden sanctuary covered the earth. And God's glory would cover the earth. But we come to Genesis 3. And what happens in Genesis 3? Adam failed. He was not obedient. He did not guard the temple. He let the snake come. He was not obedient to God's Torah. Consequently, he is cast out, exiled. But God, in His mercy, in His grace, comes and makes a promise. The promise of what? A seed. A seed. This promise of seed in Genesis 3.15 is in seed form. Okay? So the promise of a seed in Genesis 3.15 is in seed form. It will develop. It will germinate. You come to Abraham, there is a promise of a seed. You come to David, there is a promise of a seed, a descendant. We will expand until it comes to its fruition in Jesus Christ. So we move from Adam to Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, David, Solomon, until we find Jesus Christ, the one who is the true seed, the one who can undo what was done in the garden. He accomplishes what Adam failed in doing. Adam was supposed to glorify the Lord, and what did Adam do? He didn't glorify the Lord. And then comes Jesus. And I'm certain that Dan got my notes. Because look at John chapter 17. That was what he was reading earlier here. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son may glorify You. Look at the language of Edenic, Edenic language. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, the Son is connected to Adam, the true Adam, the Son of God, and the language of dominion. Since you have given him, the Son of God, Jesus, authority over all flesh, you give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. Remember, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Look at that. I glorified you on earth. Adam failed. Israel failed. I succeeded. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me. Adam failed. The last Adam accomplished. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then he moved to Ephesians, and Paul is going to say that we who are in Christ also must live for His glory, the glory of His praises. Ephesians 1, 3 through 12, to the praise of His glorious grace, and that's how he finished. Verse 12, have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of of His glory. Adam was created as an image bearer to resemble God's glory, expand the kingdom. He fails. Jesus comes. The last Adam. He glorifies God and all those who are in Jesus must live for that first purpose in the Garden of Eden. To glorify the Lord. 
So you go through the New Testament, passage after passage, talking about Christians and what you're supposed to do, glorify God in your body. So whether you eat or drink, whether you watch a movie or listen to music, whether you go out for a walk or driving around, do all to the glory of God. Think about the church. The church is not about your preferences. It's about the glory of God. Jesus was about the glory of God. I have glorified you. We are in Him. Therefore, everything that we do, we must be asking, how is it glorifying the Lord? And how do we know if it's glorifying the Lord? His book. His book tells us if we are glorifying Him or not. Church is not about you. It's not about your preferences. It's not about what you like. Sorry to inform you that. But the church is not about you. It's about His glory. Our mission is the glory of God. All our activities, all our programs as a church must be centered on the glory of God. And as a people for His glory, and that's the last point, and we finish right here. And as a people for His glory, we must be reflecting a new creation. A new creation. One of the first fruits of the fall is hostility between mankind. Genesis start moving. First the man blames the woman. Right there. And then he starts seeing hostility between brothers. And the hostility develops more and more. That's important. Because that's the, the fruit of the fall. But in Jesus, the better Adam, the walls of hostilities, they're all broken down. That's what Paul says. So if you want to turn there, please turn your Bibles or you just follow with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And he finish right here. Ephesians 2. Starting verse 12 through 22, that's key for the nature of the church. One new man in Christ, the new Adam, the new creation. Adam represents humanity. We in Jesus represent the new humanity, a reformed humanity, a glorified humanity in Jesus. Paul says, remember that you were at, the, at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressing ordinances that He might create in Himself one new Adam, one new man, in place of the two. So, men, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. One man, one body. That's the language of church membership. That's not created by people. It's biblical. Membership in a church. You have one body. You have members in a church. Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, He is the language of temple, language of temple, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church must never be characterized by color of the skin, by social status, position in society, sinful partiality, sinful discrimination. No. All these things are part of Adam, fallen Adam, hostility, hate, rejection. You go through Ephesians 2, you see that Paul believes and as the Bible says, there are only two races of people. Fallen race and restored race. Human race. The whole language of black, yellow, white, green as being race, that, that's not biblical. You have ethnicity. But in the Bible, there are only two races. Ephesians 2. Fallen race. Fallen human race. Children of wrath. Restored human race. In Jesus Christ. And we, in Jesus, the renewed Adam, a new humanity, must not be resembling 
the fallen humanity with hostility, with gossip, with backstabbing one another, rejection because of color of skin, what they call racism. And you see, sometimes people in Christian circles who make fun of other people, who hate other people because of color of skin, because of uh, geographical location, and they claim themselves to be Christians, that's moronic. That's the most stupid thing you can believe. You don't even know what color of skin Adam was. And we are in Jesus, this new Adam, the greater Adam, the greater humanity. That's Paul's argument. The church should not be a place of backstabbing one another and, and gossip and hating and hostility. Actually, it's a place just like Eden in the beginning where man was made in his image, loving him. And what is the greatest command? To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Going back to the Garden of Eden. So the church is one man in Jesus, one new Adam, one creation. And we live to glorify the Lord by loving Him, loving others. So as we can see, the church is not a parenthesis. The church is not an accident. The church has been God's plan since eternity. Father, we thank You, we praise You for Your sovereign plan in history to save a people for Yourself. Lord, thank You. Thank You for changing us, placing us in Jesus, giving us faith, giving us eyes to see this better and greater Adam, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. Help us as a church to see our identity in Jesus, who He is, what He has done. So help us as a local church to be the dwelling of God. A place where people come and they, they, they find refreshment here. They can see it's a holy place unto you. Lord, I pray that we as a church, as a local church, would resemble the new humanity in Jesus. Loving each other despite the differences. Hating gossip. Hating partiality. Treasuring in you, Lord. So help us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.